Today on Cross Defense, we hear your comments, questions, and bits of biblical brilliance from the inbox. We have plenty of messages to pull from as we discuss female lay readers, DCEs, Sunday school teachers, and women leaders in the exploding church in Iran. And no, I don't mean that the church is blowing up. It's just rapidly growing. So we'll get into that. We'll also spend some time talking about why I don't advise delegating parts of the public service of the word to laity of either gender, not just women. But first, there's an update to the Freedom of Conscience and Religious Liberty Conference that you got to hear, this conference that we here at St. Mark are hosting. All of that and more is coming up right now on Cross Defense. Replying to my audacious theological maneuver of citing St. Paul's inspired words that prohibit female pastors, Luke Besmer posted on St. Mark's Facebook page, this guy, I think that means me, is the reason the saying, the only problem with Christianity is all the Christians, is spot on. He's stuck on the teachings of Paul, who wasn't a disciple, didn't know Jesus personally, and had a bad reputation as a terrorizer of Christians prior to his conversion. Yeah, look up Paul, Saul's history. Jesus was inclusive. Remember, whoever is not against us is for us? Question mark, question mark. Not sure what that's about. Get over yourself, dude, he says. Well, stick around to the end of today's show for my thoughts on Luke Besmer's post. Welcome to Cross Defense. This is the show that aims to equip the mind, excite the imagination, and comfort the soul, and aims to do all of that with God's Word. I'm your host, Reverend Tyrell Bramwell. I'm the pastor of St. Mark Lutheran Church out here in Ferndale, California, where, get this, my friends, get this, historic Christianity, your confessional creed is discriminated against by Indians. <laughs> Go figure, pagan peoples who worship false gods don't want Christians to speak about Jesus. If during the show you want to send us your questions, comments, or bits of biblical brilliance, well then go to stmarksferndale.com slash contact. That's S-T-M-A-R-K-S, ferndale.com slash contact. You can also leave us a review and hopefully a five-star rating of the show on your podcast platform of choice. Wherever you listen to this show, well, help the algorithms know you want others to listen to it as well. Unbelievers are not friendly to the truth, so we need your help to push the message of Christ out to more people despite algorithmic restrictions. So thanks, guys. We really appreciate your partnership in this process. So yeah, the local Indian tribe that owns and operates the casino and resort where we rented a 200-person capacity conference room for our Freedom of Conscience and Religious Liberty Conference terminated our contract. That's right, terminated our contract and refunded our deposit and released our blocked-out rooms. We had 20 rooms blocked out for out-of-town attendees. They released it. Why? Why? Well, because of my public teaching from about a year ago, my public teaching that Christopher Columbus was a Christian evangelist and not the genocidal murderer the leftists want everyone to believe he was. You can watch the video version of that Ferndale Fortitude from a year ago. I'll leave the link in the show notes. You guys are great, and you send in your emails, but because we only have an hour a week and certain things come up and require our on-air attention, we don't get to them every episode, and I'm sorry for that. Thanks for your patience, and now 
I want to get to as many as we possibly can. I want to tackle as many as possible. And I think most of these are going to be all related to actually the most recent um, episode, the female pastors episode, and then also the reply with the sewing division. But most of them are dealing with this female pastors issue. It seems to be something that you're very interested in learning more about. And so first up, we hear Pastor Bramwell loved your cross defense on female pastors, women pretending to be pastors. My question is concerning women readers during the service. Our current LCMS congregation allows this practice. My husband has attempted to discuss this with our elders. Their response to him was that this has been a practice for 30 plus years. Why is it a problem now? Our church is in, I can actually just stop right there and say, well, what was it before the 30 plus years ago? And why was the innovation introduced? What was the problem with the pre-women readers? Kind of go the other way around with that, right? Uh, The church is in vacancy and the elders wish to stay the course until we receive a new pastor. My assumption is that when you say women should remain silent in church, this covers reading. Would it be possible to cover this topic? Thank you for standing for Christ. God bless you, your family, and your congregation, Mrs. Ford in Tennessee. Well, thank you very much for the blessing, Mrs. Ford. Thank you, dear woman. And thank you for writing in. My pastoral answer, now this is Pastor Bramwell's pastoral answer, is no. Women should not read the lessons in the divine service. Why? Because it sows confusion. And as St. Paul writes, in the verse immediately prior to commanding that women shouldn't preach, ours is not a God of confusion. Look at 1 Corinthians 14, 33-34. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. This is right there in that pericope. We want to be careful and thoughtful in our active, but also our passive teaching. As I discussed previously regarding the 1 Timothy 2 connection to the order of creation, men are the givers and women the receivers. This is the biological reality in marriage, and it's also the spiritual reality in the church. Ephesians 5.32 tells us that this lover and beloved relationship between man and wife refers to Christ and the church. A woman standing at the lectern reading the passages looks very similar to a man standing in the pulpit, doesn't she? And when they both open their mouths, They're doing so, at least with the perception of authority, declaring the word of the Lord, aren't they? And between the readings, we even hear, thus saith the Lord, or this is the word of the Lord, which are words that convey certainty as we see over and over again in the prophets. But beyond that, what are we told about the word of God? Turn with me to Isaiah 55 starting at verse 10, and I guess just 11, 10 and 11. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God's word is seed. This is what Jesus explains. 
after telling his parable of the sower, right? Luke 8, 11. He says it in that many words. There's a lot more we could say about this, but we have, uh, the, the goal is to try to get to as many emails and messages as possible. So time's fleeting. Suffice it to say, my pastoral view that you asked for is that a man should be the sower of the seed in the public service, be it at the pulpit or the lectern when he's preaching the word of God, referencing it and, and extrapolating it, or whether he's reading it and, and proclaiming it that way. It's still the same seed that's going out. We've seen the slippery slope on this front, haven't we? All we have to do is look at the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America and we can see how the camel's nose gets into the tent and before you know it, you got this giant transgender camel standing on your bed. <laughs> it shouldn't be there, right? Uh, it just goes from one thing to the next, to the next, to the next. No, I would even say this pertains to, well, especially pertains to um, the idea of like, Women doing the little children's sermon, this is, this is bad juju. This is bad stuff. We don't do this. Why? Well, it's right there in the title, the children's sermon. It's the public preaching. Just because they're kids in the public service doesn't mean that it's okay for a woman to be preaching that sermon to them because that she's preaching not only to those kids. They're there hearing it, but who else is? The entire congregation. And what are they doing? They're seeing a woman preaching. She's setting an example that's not appropriate, even if she's not uh, preaching over adults, because she is directing her words toward children. Yes, I get that. But she is in the public service preaching a children's sermon. And women are not given to preach sermons, to publicly proclaim the religious word of the gospel to hearers in the divine service. But beyond that, Mrs. Ford, my advice is that no layperson actually reads the lessons, or, or if, you know, if the pastor's there, preaches the sermon. That's his job, male or female. See, it's my opinion that it's pretty, and it's pretty easy to see, that it's within the vocational responsibility of the pastoral office. And I think we should, we should take care to keep pastors and laymen working in their proper vocational lanes. The pastor has been called to proclaim the word of God and administer the sacraments, and he does this for certainty's sake, for assurance of the gospel. He does this as one who's been, who's been given, the congregation has given him the keys to both, both loose and bind, right? The keys that the Lord has given to his church, those keys are within the hands of the pastors. He's the man wearing the badge. It may look like a white collar, but it's a badge. It says, I have authority to be doing the things I'm doing up here that we've all come to agreement on. That it is, it's within good keeping, it's according to good order, and that I am meeting all of these, these overseer requirements to be doing this thing I'm about to do in the divine service. And so there's a, we're messing with the certainty of the gospel for the, the burdened consciences that are listening. In our contemporary setting, the laity, they started reading the lessons by and large here in, in America after Vatican II, when the Roman Catholics underwent their own cultural changes and everybody was looking for more ways for the laity to be involved in church. That was part of the big deal of getting more people involved. Why? Well, to try to keep them engaged and keep them in church. Oh, hey, how about the readings? Well, I got a better idea. How about the laity come to church as the church? 
(laughs) as the bride of Christ and do what brides do. Be the receivers of the bridegroom's love. That's a good idea. This is easier understood when we remember that the divine service is God serving us. This is the time for us to come and sit and receive, to rest in the work of Christ on the cross, distributed through the ordained minister of his word and sacraments, the man who was called and sent to preach to us his word and to administer his sacraments. Who's doing all the work there? Jesus is. We ought to let the man who was called and sent by God to stand in the stead and by the command of Jesus, our bridegroom, actually stand in the stead and by the command of him who serves us, Jesus. See? The pastor goes to seminary. He's trained to preach. He's trained to teach. He's he's trained to administer the sacraments. Let the guy do his job. Let the guy read the Bible. No one else needs to do that. We don't need to spread it around so people feel like they're more involved. There's plenty of ways for people to be involved. Let the guy who was trained to be a, uh, I don't know, general contractor and has worked hard all week long come to the Lord's house and rest in the word of the Lord without feeling a sense of pressure to serve when he should be getting served, being served. He should be coming and resting and being at peace and, and, and Jesus is serving him. I'm of the opinion that delegating these, these different parts of the public service, the service of the word to laymen, only aids the misapplication of the law. It confuses the Christian into thinking like, like many of the evangelicals do who, who borrow from the pagans, if we're being honest, the idea that we come to church to do something for God, to capture the the attention of heaven, as is said, and get divine attaboys for our service, for our doing. And what does all of that do? Burden the conscience with the law. I don't think that's its intent, but that's what it devolves into. Not to mention it also mutes the proper understanding of when and where Laymen serve their neighbor with the word of God. See, you got a pastor. He serves the congregation in the gathering of the saints so that the saints, male and female alike, can take what they receive from him out into the world during the week. Not there on Sunday, on Sunday, there at the, at the lectern, but to receive in the pew and then go out to wherever your general contractor is working on site and be able to share the gospel, the law and the gospel, with our neighbors in our daily life. It also muddies up the concept of of how we can serve our neighbor. We can serve not only in our activity, but also in our passivity. The very act of coming to church is a service to our neighbors, coming together to be served as encouragers, encouraging others to do the same, encouraging others to rest, to quit the rat race, to take a breather, a Sabbath, to rest in the word of the Lord. So all of this this confusion, I would say, Mrs. Ford, is, is simply amplified 
by women women being the readers. It's it's there already, but it's amplified when it's a woman doing the reading. I think we should we should pamper our women as Christians. We should serve them as much as possible. Women are the receivers. But they do an awful lot of giving all week long, don't they? Can they read? Absolutely, sure. They can read very well, I'm sure, publicly. I'm talking about actually like the process of reading out loud. I'm sure that most of the women read better publicly, read better out loud than the men do. Given the last 50 or so years of our public school system and how it's oriented toward the, the woman and, and the, the girl's makeup of being able to learn, and it frustrates men who are sitting there, boys who are sitting there trying to, uh, to be squeezed into this method of learning, I think we have trained up all, all of our women to be really good at public discourse where men lack confidence in such a thing. They're probably better public readers, is what I'm saying, than the men, the women are. But should they? Well, not if there's an able-bodied man in the room. Just like, should they have to stand? No. If there's, if there's an, a man in the room and a woman comes in and there's not a seat, he should get up and give the woman his seat. Does he have to? No. Should he? Yes. See, I know this is dead, but this is that thing, and I know you know this, Mrs. Ford, this is that thing called chivalry. And it shouldn't be dead. We should resurrect it. Women shouldn't have to read in the public service just like they shouldn't have to go to war. Or they shouldn't have to pull out their own chair or open their own door, pump their own gas. Can they do all those things? I suppose. Should they have to? No. Okay, so plus it just makes us look all the much all that much more like the ELCA and and that's the last thing a congregation should ever want in this day and age. So, uh, great question. Let's take a break right there. Let's go to our first, our first break. We'll come back and we'll see what else we have in the inbox. Thanks. Iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another. Put this wisdom of God into practice by listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple. And faithful pastors from around the world help sharpen my faith in Christ every episode. I know you'll be blessed by listening and studying God's Word with us. Listen to Sharper Iron weekdays at 8 a.m. on KFUO and on demand at KFUO.org, the KFUO radio app, and anywhere you get your podcasts. All right, welcome back to Cross the Fence. Let's get a dead theologian's input on this, shall we? The good Reverend Theodore Gravener is always insightful. He says in the borderland of right and wrong, the policy of the church must ever be to resist the adoption of any custom by our people that is offensive in the sense that it wipes out the distinction between the worldly-minded and the children of God. We don't want to look like the world, people. Even though we're in the world, we are not of it. That doesn't mean that we get to act like the world and then still be Christian and still say we're, we're Christian. No, it means we're set apart from the world. We live here, we're located here, we're still on this side of the resurrection, but we do not look like the world. We look like Christians. This is our witness. Okay, also regarding the female pastors episode, 
Another emailer, this one going by the name of Curious, wrote, The growing church in Iran is under extreme persecution. It's also a church that is reportedly predominantly led by women. Given the content of your last episode of Cross Defense, do you believe this church is operating under a satanic lie? Now, Curious, I watched the video that you sent, thank you very much, and nowhere did I hear that the Christian women in Iran are serving as pastors. There are all kinds of ways for women to be in leadership positions. Let us not forget that. See, I mentioned Priscilla in that female pastors episode, right? That her name was even recorded there in scripture tells us that she was seen as a leader. But she didn't preach in the public service, did she? No. Neither did Mary. You could, you could juxtapose all that we know about Mary, the mother of our Lord, with, with the, the disciples, and we can see how she is a leader. Absolutely. Same with Mary Magdalene. Same with the other women that are mentioned there in the Gospels. But we don't see them given the same pastoral, prophetic role of proclaiming the word. They do report the word to the apostles, Right? We see that Mary Magdalene does go and tell the disciples that Jesus has risen. Wonderful thing that the woman is included there at the very beginning. And indeed, Mary Magdalene is a leader in the church, but she's not a pastor in the church. She's not one of the, the apostles, one who's numbered among the brothers in that narrow sense. She's a brethren, <laughs> but she's not one of the brothers, one of the pastors, one of the apostles there, right? Okay, so by example, we can see that Priscilla is a wonderful leader in the church when we look at her, not as a pastor, but as a lay leader. Acts 18.26, right? Apollos began to speak boldly in the synagogue to preach, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and they explained to him the way of God more accurately. This is leadership in its proper submissive way for the woman. Absolutely. You don't think that all the brilliance I have, this guy Ty, comes from myself. No, uh comes from Mrs. Bramwell. Absolutely. We have wonderful conversations where she teaches me often her insights into the word, and I do her too. I teach to her, and I explain to her. And same with my children. You know how many nuggets of truth I've pulled out of my children just sitting there at the dinner table, and they, out of the mouths of babes come these wonderful insights. But that doesn't mean the children are supposed to be pastors, not as children. <laughs> so see, there are many ways we can lead in a passive way. We also hear of the leading women of the church in Thessalonica in Acts chapter 17, starting at verse 2 we read, And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. The term Leading women doesn't necessarily mean they're pastors. It doesn't equate that if you're a leading woman, you are 
no doubt about it, a pastor. No, certainly not. And this leads us to Hemset's request as well. Pastor, can you address women in the roles of DCE and Sunday school teacher? Absolutely. Thanks for the question, Hemset. I think I'm saying your username right. Neither of these positions, DCE being Director of Christian Education or Sunday school teacher, is an office instituted by our Lord. But pastor is. So I actually would say this, and this might be controversial, and I don't mean this to be derogatory at all toward women. I actually mean it to be, again, a pampering statement, a serving statement. I would like to see more and more men fill these roles as well. Yes, to pamper our women and let them not have to serve on Sunday, but to be served as the premier example of the bride of Christ. Let the men lead. Let the men do the serving. That's what I think as directors of Christian education and even Sunday school teachers in many situations. Now that said, that said, as Luther once wrote, a woman with her little finger does better by a child than a man with both his fists. Why is this? It's true. But why? Because we understand that a woman has a nurturing nature to her that serves children well. So we understand, too, why Sunday school teachers have a tendency to be women, women of a motherly or grandmotherly sort, right? Because they have a lot of the attributes, a lot of the abilities necessary to to connect and teach and, and to walk with the little ones. It's built into their role of mother. And that's a good fit, right? As long as the women are also well-equipped and well-prepared to teach the kids the Bible. Often, a well-intentioned woman will step up to teach Sunday school, and she, she's very well-equipped to do all the things that a mother would do with the littlest children. But she doesn't know what she needs to know to be a teacher of the Word in this regard. And so she can actually inadvertently end up doing more harm than good because while she is very loving and nurturing and she has those qualities that make her a good fit for caring for children, she isn't well-versed in the Bible and can't answer the questions that these kids will throw her way. And kids have a very good radar for when they're being buffaloed, right? And we don't want to put a teacher or the children in a situation where anyone's being buffaloed because that breaks down the integrity of the truth. And it's not proper for any situation. This problem, coupled with the reality that Sunday school is a relatively recent innovation, actually, and it's not supported by Scripture when we look at the passages, we see, like we did with lay readers, when we think about this, that there is a bigger problem surrounding Sunday school. See, we don't... We don't do Sunday school here at St. Mark. I don't know if you're aware of that. I mentioned it in previous episodes, I'm sure. But I actually encourage the parents to bring their kids with them to Bible study. Why? Well, for one, all the laity are served together in the divine service, aren't they? So, yeah, this is 
presuming that you do the right practice of keeping the kids in the divine service where the Lord has promised to serve them and don't take them away to kitty church. So we know that this can be done, that the entire family can be served by God all at once in, in the divine service. So why can't it happen also in the Bible study? Two, who do you want teaching your child? The seminary trained and called, you know, divinely called pastor or a well-meaning grandma without the experience, knowledge, and or resources to properly answer hard questions? Yeah, the children should have quality teaching too, right? In fact, I make the argument that given their lifespan, how it limits them to less learning and less experience and, and, and makes them more vulnerable to the devil's assaults than the adults who've been around a little longer, I make the argument that where there is a Sunday school, the pastor should be the one teaching the kids. And if you're going to have a volunteer lay teacher, that person should be the Bible study leader because he is a pretty smart guy and he's been around a while and he at least knows how to read and he knows how to look up things and, and the people who are, are hearing him understand that he's not the, the, the scholarly trained, biblical, uh, you know, biblically trained pastor, but he's just a, a fill-in, whereas the kids don't understand that Grandma Schmidt's not the most experienced person. They just assume she is. And so there's a clearer understanding of what's going on. So I say the pastor goes with the kids and the volunteer goes with the adults. Or we do like we see in the scriptures and we just gather together, unsegregated. And we learn what the pastor has spent time preparing for us from the scriptures, young and old, everyone blessing each other with their participation. And we all grow together. See, the other aspect of this is that the parents know exactly what their kids are learning and they're able to to further that conversation when they go home when they're driving in the car on their way home when they're sitting on the couch right it's very much the biblical method they get to talk about these things all the time and ultimately the parents who've been given the vocational responsibility of raising up their children in the faith, get to demonstrate what it looks like to be a faithful mom and dad, a faithful adult, uh, as lifelong learners of the Lord's word, as the kids are watching and passively learning that mom and dad take this Bible study stuff seriously, as they're sitting right there in the Bible study with them. It's a powerful, passive message of how the kids should be when they grow up and they're adults and they have kids that everybody should be always in the word and that we do it together because we are a family so thanks for those great questions i've lost count how many we've dealt with so far but there's a few and i think i dropped the names of those who sent them in so thanks for that um, now this is a this is a fun response to the female pastors episode. This one is uh, from an ELCA pastor here in the Humboldt County area of Grace Good Shepherd Church in McKinleyville, California. Uh, the Reverend Dr. Lynn Hubbard, whose sermon I reviewed last year, uh, he writes, Pastor Bramwell, speaking as an ordained Lutheran minister of 45 years and a doctor of theology, and on behalf of my wife, a Presbyterian minister and all the women in my congregation, we wish you well in your very needed therapy. <laughs> 
And rest assured, we will continue to pray for the spiritual liberation of your wife. Well, thank you. A couple things there, Dr. Hubbard. I'm disappointed that a minister of 45 years and one who apparently put in the time and effort to get a doctorate degree (laughs) would take the time to listen to the episode. Thanks for that, by the way. Take in all the scripture readings. I hope that was helpful. Track through all the points that I made from them and then compose a reply consisting of nothing but a juvenile and sad ad hominem attack? What's going on here, guy? What about my presentation of scripture refuting female pastors lead you to believe I need therapy? What's with that? Is that the way Christians conduct themselves? I think not. Please repent, brother. And this leads to the other thing that you said, and that is the lack of sincerity that's on display in your message. As a pastor, I take God's word very seriously. Even if I don't take myself seriously, I take God's word very seriously, and I take the care of souls very seriously. Now, I admittedly only have nine years in the ministry, not 45, and I have no desire to get a doctorate. But what I have is a deep desire to be faithful to my master out of love for my neighbors, a love that comes from him, and a willingness to suffer in the process, if that be the Lord's will. Oh, and telling me I need therapy, that is, it's very low on the list of insults that I've received in my inbox. You got to up the game if you want to actually get under my skin been called a lot of nasty things, as I'm sure you know and you've been seeing in the paper. As for my wife, well, the properties chairman here at St. Mark, well, he had this to say to Pastor Hubbard. You clearly don't know his wife. She expects him to have the fortitude that you don't. And that, my friends, is the truth. All right, how about a comment not related to the female pastor's episode? Yeah, finally, okay. Hi, Pastor. I wanted to write you a note and first to thank you for the important work you do. I've been binge watching and listening to your videos as well as your episodes of Cross Defense. In fact, all of the shows on KFUO that I've had a chance to listen to have been so helpful to me. I'm so thankful that I discovered them. Praise be to God. Second, if I could ask you to say a prayer for my wife, that would be great. She's struggling with her faith. I don't know if she considers herself a Christian anymore. She speaks as if she doesn't. I reminded her that she was baptized. She told me that she felt pressured. I spoke with our pastor, and he suggested they meet. But she agreed and hasn't followed through as of yet. I pray for her often, and when she seems open to talking on the topic, we do. I've been encouraged, though, not to pressure her. This has caused me heartache. I've read the scriptures where Paul addresses the topic of marriage to non-believers, and I do my best to heed that advice. I continue to pray for her and to remind myself that God loves her more than I'm capable, and I think of my own experience. I grew up a Christian but left for what I thought was a worldly life, ended up being a very evil life. Praise be to God, he continued to call me to repentance and forgives me despite my foolish and evil ways. Thirdly, I wanted to express that there might be a good show topic here. I know of another Christian man with a non-believing wife, but several several others who have 
non-believers in their families, be they children or siblings or whomever. Maybe even a broader topic on how to evangelize in the family. Thanks for reading this. Again, I thank you for all your shows and videos. They've truly blessed me. Yes, yes, this is an important topic. Thanks for watching, my friend, and, and thanks for listening to uh, not only Cross Defense, but also all the other shows here at KFUO. Speaking for all of us here at KFUO Radio, we're honored to be of service to you in the name of our Lord. And yes, absolutely, I will pray for your wife. Know this, Christian. While it stinks that she has a negative view of her baptism right now, it absolutely stinks. And that's me using G-rated language, right? The fact remains that your wife is baptized, and that's not nothing. As her husband, you've been given a blessing, the blessing of being Christ to your bride and in a uniquely emphatic way, much like what I was talking about before regarding how we pamper our wives, how we serve our wives. Too often, we can, even in the home, even as husbands, we can let the wife do all the, the serving. And we, we really fail to have the opportunity or to take the opportunity, to seize the opportunity to serve our wives. And the Lord has allowed for you to have a clear-cut opportunity to be of extreme service to your wife, dear friend. Our Lord did all the work to save us. He, he pursued us, his bride, his wayward, wayward bride. He pursued us. You, brother, have a very intense Ephesians 5, 25 to 27 situation before you, don't you? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. This situation is horrible. Anyone doubting their faith, horrible. Doubting their baptism, horrible. But, you see clearly the work you have before you, and that is a minor, minor consolation, is something. You know your service to your wife. You get to live as the husband we all should be because the importance of it is right before you. Does this ease your heartache? No, absolutely not. Does this amplify your vocational focus? Does it clarify it? Does it sharpen it? Absolutely. And that is a blessing. Too many of us, we, we tuck our theology into a conceptual box. A theoretical, abstract, conceptual box. No. Mm -mm. That's not how we do theology in the abstract. Uh-uh. Practical. Theology. This is where it's powerful. This is where it cuts. This is why Luther's writings are so 
so important and why they've stood the test of time because he was writing as a pastor. He was writing as a real human being engaged in real life situations just like you, brother. Practical theology. You get to live as the husband that Scripture calls you to be. To to bear with your wife and to serve her in such a clear way. Thanks be to God. This is also called pastoral theology on, you know, practical theology. It could be called husbandal theology. Scripture is not to be taken in theory. As you know, it's in reality. I'm sorry you have this particular reality to deal with, but I'm trying to give you a little bit of a, a bright light to see it in a positive way where you can work with it in a way that maybe, maybe the heartache won't go away, but you'll be able to work through it. I'm terribly sorry. I'm terribly sorry to hear of anyone struggling with their faith. It breaks my heart. But at the same time, as we suffer, there's a rejoicing that can happen as well. And I'm thankful that you know the reality of truth and are, and are able to go through what the scriptures define and describe and prescribe and all that stuff, that you can go to scripture for guidance because you're living it. You're living it, man. And you can also go to your pastor for biblical counsel. Don't don't you neglect. I mean, I know your wife got the invitation to go, but don't you neglect to continue to go to him for counsel and support. And you can always go to God in prayer. You indeed you must. Okay. Let's uh take a break right there. Sorry. Let's take a break. We'll come back for our last segment of Cross Defense. Thanks for listening. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Hello, friends. I'm Pastor Phil Boo, host of Thy Strong Word. Each weekday morning at 11 a.m., join me and a guest pastor as we explore God's Word, which strengthens our faith and guides our lives. You can listen over the air, online at kfuo.org, or through your favorite podcasting app. Just search for Thy Strong Word, only from KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. Welcome back, and I am intrigued, totally intrigued by your show suggestion of how to evangelize within the family. That's neat. (laughs) I know it sounds really trite to say it that way, but that is something we shouldn't overlook. How do we evangelize our own family members? We'll be taking a look at that in the future. I'm going to give that some attention in my study time and we'll come back to it. So thank you again, brother. God's peace be with you. I may the Holy Spirit strengthen your wife's trust in Jesus and your ability to proclaim Jesus to her in the days ahead. Amen. All right. And with that, let us now spend the last segment replying to the illogical words of one Mr. Luke Besmer, who said in the, in the same breath that it's spot on that the only problem with Christianity is all the Christians. Then denounced two of those said Christians, me and St. Paul, and then furthermore got turned around in his reasoning and contradicted himself by trying to squeeze Jesus into a DEI inclusivity box, saying, whoever is not against us is for us? Question mark, 
question mark, and that still confuses me. Yes, Mr. Besmer, Jesus did say, Luke 9, 49 to 50, whoever is not against us is with us. It's for us. Absolutely, he said that. So then my question to you, sir, is why are you denouncing Paul? Why are you speaking against me, Pastor Bramwell? I mean, you don't like, I get that, you don't like that I use Paul's writings to, to teach against female pastors, I understand, and you're, you're making the argument that I should leave well enough alone that I think you said need to get over myself, dude. But if I'm guilty of defying the Lord's words of inclusivity, as you're trying to express, then you are too, aren't you? Are you not denouncing two people who are obviously not against Jesus and Christianity, but whose teachings are vigorously for it? By your own logic, then. How can you do that? I'm not against Jesus, but for him. So why are you saying anything against me? Anything. You condemn your own words. You, you send your own words to the garbage heap of nonsense by the things you're saying. Do you see how your, your desire, Mr. Bez, Besmer, do you see how your desire to shut down my biblical reproof of false teaching... By doing that, you yourself have become guilty of doing what you're accusing me of doing. Your words are moot because they deny the law of non-contradiction, dude. They're also moot because they defy Scripture's intended meaning, dude. Do you read Jesus' words in Luke 9.50 as an open door for anyone and everyone to say anything and everything in the name of Jesus? It's just the Wild West out here, and anybody gets to say anything, and anybody who speaks up against it just shut down by this, there's anyone who's not against us is for us thing. See, if you say yes, you have to accept me and Paul. If you agree to that, you have to agree to me. You have to stop saying anything negative about me. You have to quit denouncing Paul. In fact, you should repent of it. But if you say no, well, then you're admitting that you're just spun up about something that you personally don't like. And, and you lose all sense of, of integrity in your words and becomes just an ad hominem attack like Pastor Hubbard's. And that's all it is. See, if that's the case, why are you mad about me calling for two Christians to repent of their sin if anybody who's not against Jesus is for him? Because I'm, I'm for him. Is it because you actually have to confront your own wayward thoughts on the issue of women's ordination? Humble yourself, man. It's okay. It doesn't hurt to submit yourself to Jesus' teaching, to submit yourself, surrender yourself to God, to, to bend the knee to him and take your reason and let him form it and norm it. Let God's word actually shape your thoughts and not just be used as tools for your thoughts. You, my friend, are guilty of what we call magisterial reason. You're taking your human reason, which is faulty and sinful, and you're, you're placing it above God's word, and then you're letting your own reason grab God's word and use it nilly-willy how you want, 
willy-nilly, nilly-willy, however, instead of ministerial reason, taking your human intellect and your ability to read Scripture, surrendering it to God's Word and letting God's Word use your reason, not willy-nilly, but for good order. See, our... Jesus' words there in Luke 9.50, the only ones you know? Isolating them and then building a, a hermeneutic of understanding apart from the rest of Scripture, while it may be convenient, it's going to lead you and your hearers astray. And that's, that's no light thing. You posted there at St. Mark's Facebook page, and in this day and age, we think posting something on Facebook means nothing. We, we do it without any real thought. But there are people reading your words. If you're wrong about what you're saying, you have some terrible consequences before you. So I would call you to repentance, my friend. I don't know you, but you posted on the Facebook page. So be careful of what you're saying. You do have your own hearers. And your words aren't faithful. If you know other verses other parts of the Bible, well, then you need, to, you need to contend with how to rightly understand them together with Luke 9.50, letting the rule of faith and letting the totality of Scripture inform how you read them, how you understand them. Now, let me help you. I want to help you. And I'll do it while also avoiding Paul's inspired language for your sake, being gracious to you, because I know you don't recognize Paul as an apostle of Christ, even though he is, I know you don't, okay? And, and you dismiss Luke's account of uh, Paul's personal encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna dismiss Paul for the, for the time being. But, but let me say, as I say that, that it is interesting, I find it very interesting that you're okay with Luke's historical accuracy for Jesus' words in Luke 9, 49 to 50, where he tells us that if you're not against us, you're for us, but you don't trust Luke's historical accuracy in Acts 9, wherein he recounts Paul's conversion. But then to add more curiosity to the situation, you actually, in your post, tell people to look up Paul's history as a terrorizer of Christians, you say, which is only able to be done by looking into Luke, into his writings, as recorded in the book of Acts. Luke wrote Acts. If you want people to look into Luke and you want them to trust Luke 9, 50, why don't you want people to trust Acts, the other book that Luke wrote? That makes no sense to me. Dude, do you see how spun around you are, blind by your own, your own agitation to just shut me down for some reason. So let me unwind your brain if you will humble yourself and allow it. Revelation. I think based on, on your own parameters that you established in your post, I trust you're okay with the book of Revelation given that it was written by John, who is one of Jesus' 12 disciples, yeah? Yeah? Yeah, so he, he, he knew Jesus personally. So in chapter 2 of Revelation, Jesus says, Jesus himself says to the pastor of the church in Ephesus, I know your works, 
your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. Mr. Besmer, does everybody then who claims to speak for Jesus actually speak for him? Or is there a way to test? Is there a way to see that some are false? Yeah, see, not everybody who speaks for Jesus is actually Christian or actually speaking rightly. They could be Christian and speaking poorly in the name of Jesus. Some are false teachers. Look what else Jesus says here while we're in Revelation 2. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. This is Jesus talking. So Jesus doesn't like it when people teach falsely, right? Can you grant me that? Isn't that what this is saying? And what did the Lord say to the Ephesian pastor there in Revelation 2? Remember, this is Jesus himself speaking, and it's recorded by a Besmer-approved disciple. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I'll come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Hmm. How does that jive with your inclusive Jesus? Does that make sense? Is Jesus always inclusive with with no boundaries, no standards, no sort of repentance? He literally is calling people to repentance, which is what I was doing with the female pastors episode as we were teaching about female pastors, right? Let's say we don't want to hang our hats on Revelation for some reason. In 1 John, we hear passages like this one. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Huh. Okay. There is truth and there are lies and there is walking after the Lord and there is not walking after the Lord. Got it. And that's coming from the Besmer approved St. John. How about from this same book, 1 John chapter 2, 18 to 26? Children, it is the last hour, and as you've heard, that Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. 
If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I would make an argument, we'll read the rest of this in just a second, but I would make the argument, Mr. Besmer, that Ferndale Community Church and quote-unquote Pastor Jen Campbell and Pastor Daniel Porter have drifted from what they knew in the beginning. In fact, I would say if you listen to the the, uh, sermon review I did of Mrs. Porter, that she says in the beginning she didn't really want to be a pastor. She was convinced to be. I'm calling her to return to her original thought, that she said it was weird for her to be a pastor. Absolutely it's weird. Verse 26, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. (laughs) See, these are just a couple of examples, and they're very clearly, obviously, saying that there is a standard and there is a time to say no to this thing and yes to this thing, and to do it publicly, and to do it with confidence that it's not contrary to the Lord's will to stand on truth and against lie. And it all contradicts your interpretation of Luke 9, 49 to 50. There's plenty more Bible verses that we could look at, especially if you open the door and approved St. Paul to your liking. And we could look at another apostle of Christ who did know him personally and who was writing commands of the Lord. But what is the proper way to understand Jesus' statement there in Luke 50? For the one who is not against you is for you, he said. He's admonishing their poor attitude, the disciples' poor attitude about why they've been given their office. It's not so they would have exclusive rights to serve people in in the liberation of evil, like they're the only ones who could do it. The disciples aren't the only people doing the work of spreading the demon-fighting word of Christ. This is the point. All Christians get to do that. And in a certain sense, anyone who says and does what is in keeping with God's word is an ally and ought not be stopped in that particular doing that is right. Numbers 11, 26 to 30 is helpful here, and it draws this out for us. Now, two men remained in the camp, one named Eldad and the other named Medad. And the spirit rested on them. They were among those registered, but they had not gone out to the tent, and so they prophesied in the camp. And a young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth, said, My Lord Moses, stop them. But Moses said to them, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. And Moses and Israel returned to the camp. And if you still value Luke's credentials as a historian, we can learn from Peter's sermon in Acts 2 as well, where he quotes Joel, the prophet Joel, chapter 2, verse 28 to 32, saying, And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and my female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. See, what does all this tell us, Mr. Besmer? Not that men and women 
can both be pastors. That's not what's going on here. No, the church didn't read that desire into the text until the mid-20th century. Now, it's saying that all Christians are given the Holy Spirit that enables us all to tell our neighbors about Christ Jesus, also known as prophesying, which is what we're talking about with women leadership up, you know, prior to this. I was talking about how my wife gives me wonderful nuggets of truth and my kids can prophesy and tell me about Jesus. This happens among all of us. Christians all, all alike get to speak about Jesus and tell the good news of the Lord to their neighbor. Does it mean there aren't still vocational distinctions? Absolutely not. Would that every Christian was out there spreading the good news about Jesus. This is what every pastor is trying to convince his people to do. Talk to your neighbors about Jesus, friends. Not as pastors. Not in the office of pastor. But as the priesthood of all believers. As Christians. And certainly, when they spread a false word about Jesus, be they pastors or Christian lay people. As the pastor, it is my job to speak against that. It is, it is appropriate to acknowledge that someone is no longer with us in their activity, but that they've, they've set themselves against us because they're doing and saying things contrary to Scripture. They're, this is known as lying doing things that Jesus hates. Casting out demons is not contrary to Scripture. So don't stop it, Jesus says. But casting out demons in the name of Jesus while misrepresenting Jesus, yeah, the church better stop that, as Jesus tells us. Or as you may prefer, Mr. Besmer, as Jesus says in Matthew twelve thirty, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me, scatters. I don't know. You seem to have a propensity for that type of verse. I hope you understand. And I hope everyone else does as well. I hope you're all equipped, excited, and comforted in mind, imagination, and soul. Dear saints, until next time, Christ be with you. And thanks for listening to Cross Defense. Cross Defense is a production of KFUO Radio. Find past episodes and support Cross Defense at KFUO.org.